This is Leewood Online, a ministry of Leewood Baptist Church, located in the Kansas City area. For more information about us, visit us online at www.leewoodbaptist.com. My name's Greg, and I'll be reading the scripture today. Um, We'll be in Matthew chapter 6 starting in verse 5. Um, if you're using the Black Pew Bibles in front of you, you can find that on page 811. So page 811, Matthew 6, 5 through 15. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows that you, what you need before you ask him. So pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Thanks, guys. Good morning, everybody. Hey, if I haven't met, my name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm excited to be with you this morning. Hey, if you're new, let me just kind of orient you to where we are. We're actually jumping back into the Sermon on the Mount. We've been there actually since December, just kind of slowly working through the book of Matthew, and we're in this section on one of Jesus' largest sermons, just talking about what it means to be in the kingdom what it means to follow the king of the kingdom and not new rules that we must obey, but what he's actually doing inside of us to help us be in relationship with him. And then what would that actually look like in our lives is what Jesus is aiming at in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So we've been there for a while, took a little break the last couple of weeks to talk about the church and talk about what it means to be part of a church. We talked about why church even exists and then what we're trying to do as a church and then how you can be meaningfully involved and all week long, I've been kicking myself because there's some like really important things that I didn't say. And I think if I try to keep saying them, we'll be in a series on the church since December and we'll kind of keep going and going and going. So I don't want to do that. But there are a couple of things that like I feel irresponsible if I don't like at least acknowledge. So let me just say a couple of quick things and then I'll pray for us and we'll jump into this text. I can't believe I did three whole weeks without giving you like our vision sentence like from our website, like not that that's our catchphrase and you have to memorize it, but it does feel important. In fact, Adam actually said it in our announcements this morning. So we, we gather to proclaim hope and to pursue transformation. Those are kind of the two rallying cries for us. And you could expand that out and say, we exist to glorify God. We want to live out the great commission and the great commandments by proclaiming hope and pursuing transformation that can only be found in Jesus. So if you want to know like what we're about in a sentence, that's it. If you're wondering what our church is trying to do and accomplish, that's, that's it. So that's really important. You should know like that one sentence from our website. That's one thing. 
Second thing, I didn't tell you what to do if you wanted to become a member of our church. So I did this compelling talk for three weeks, and then I just kind of left you out there. So I know all week long you've been anxiously wondering, now what must I do to join this amazing church? Uh, It's really simple. You could just email us and say, hey, I'm ready to take a step. Or you could fill out a little card and say, hey, I'd love to learn some more. Super casual. But we do have a process that we want to sit down with you kind of in an interview setting, not to see if you're good enough to be a member, but just to hear your story. Part of being part of a church is us kind of walking alongside your faith for a moment, making sure there's a a real relationship with Jesus, and then making sure you're doing okay to know how to pray for you because pastors commit to care for the people of our church. And that interview then is a way for us to do that. So it's a way for us to care for you. And then our church actually votes on our members. We're a congregational church, which means our church votes not just for parking lots, like Adam announced, but, but actually to, to welcome people. So it's a way to inf- affirm you. So we have a get to know you and then an affirm you process. So it's pretty simple. But the reason why we don't just have people come down an aisle and sign a card is we really care about you. We don't want to make it like a long, arduous process, but we want to invite you into our family and get to know you as you do that. So you could just shoot an email or fill out a little card and just say, hey, I'm ready to go. Third thing, and this is it. I didn't tell you like how to start getting involved. And so I don't want membership to be this thing for us where we just go like from zero to 60 one day and you were kind of on the sidelines and then you became a member and all of a sudden you're jumping in. It should be the kind of thing that we're growing towards. And so I just want to invite you to begin to participate in the life of our body through serving, through giving, through being involved in community. You don't have to be a member to do those things. You don't even have to be a Christian to be able to start to get involved in the life of our church. And so I want to invite you to begin taking some steps that direction. So I want to walk this line where we are pretty casual, not pressuring anybody, giving you tons of time and space. It's just been such a crazy season. You need some space to ask what is church and what church do I want to be a part of and who are these people. But I don't want our kind of... um, going slow or not putting pressure on you to make you think we don't care whether it's not important to us so you being involved in the life of a church really matters not just to us but i think to jesus it's his body his bride his building and so he wants you engaged in that it's kind of a weird season of how to do that well but when you are ready would love to take a step and if you just have some questions you want to ask to go a little bit further i would love to engage that with you so so those are things that i should have said that i didn't say and uh, now i'll pray and jump in and actually i love in a lot of ways If we're talking about what it means to live life in the kingdom, that's not a different topic than what it means to be in the church. God's actually inviting his people into this relationship with him as his bride. And so as we jump back into Sermon on the Mount, um, in some ways it's like part two of our church series. That's a cheap connection, but I'm going to try to make it anyway. Um, Let me pray for us, and then we'll dive in to this passage. Jesus, thank you for who you are and for what you've done. And then to say that is not just like a way to start a prayer. It, It acknowledges that you laid down your life for us to make us a people that could be in relationship with you what you've done is actually sacrifice yourself and bear the weight of our sin and make a way for us to be in a relationship with the father and make a way for the holy spirit to come and be close to us like you have done um, mind-blowing miraculous things and so we just start by saying thank you would you kind of awaken us to that reality would you um excite us to that reality? Would you heal us with that reality? Would you reorient us with that reality? I pray what you've done would speak loud over us this morning more than how to get involved in a church or points of a sermon. Would you speak over us your love that is strong and stable and historic and powerful, powerful enough to rescue and save and heal, powerful enough to forgive us and to to help us as we go forward. So, So we ask for your help. Holy Spirit, speak to us. Hope your word come alive to us, uh, change us by it, and I ask you to grant salvation to those who don't yet know you, 
and that you would welcome your people closer uh, through your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. Wait, we're going to step into this section. We're actually going to be here for a couple of weeks. I think prayer is one of the most important things we do and maybe one of the most challenging things we do. And I think Jesus knows that because actually in the Sermon on the Mount, he's going to take a couple of sections to talk about prayer. We'll see prayer again in Matthew chapter 7. And so we're just going to slow down just a little bit. And here's what I want to do this morning. I want to talk about why pray, like what's the point of praying anyway, which isn't a throwaway question. I know you asked that early in the morning. You asked that late at night. You asked that when you feel guilty for not praying. You ask it when you've been inspired by somebody else's prayers. You, you have this question of like, what's the point anyway? Why why should we pray? That's where I want to go this morning. And then next week, we'll talk about how to pray. In some ways, this passage just kind of starts with the negative. It's almost like how not to pray. So next week, we'll just put some practical things in place and talk about how do we pray. And I'm really excited. I'm going to be joined on the stage next week by three of our spiritual mothers, some, some women who pray like crazy for us. There is a regular at our Thursday prayer gathering over the noon hour. So I'm going to have three ladies with me next week just talking about how do we actually pray and try to be uber practical with you of what does it look like for you to actually pray. And then we'll take the third week and talk about what to pray. And we'll just slow down through verses 9 to 13 and walk through the Lord's Prayer kind of as a template for us. So, so why pray and then how to pray and then what to pray will be the next couple of weeks for us. And I want to slow down again because I think it's a place that we actually struggle. And so I want to both like demystify prayer for you and kind of make it a more regular, natural thing, but also elevate it for you to just stop for a second and talk about what we're doing when we pray is talking to the God of the universe. There's a book I read during quarantine called The Possibility of Prayer by John Stark that I would highly recommend to you. And there's a sentence in there where he says, prayer is either the greatest insanity or it's the most wonderful news in the universe. It's one or the other. The thought of us as these little specks on this little planet talking to a God that we can't see and touch who spun the entire universe into existence, that's either crazy or it's the most amazing news you could ever hear. It's either this thing that haunts you wondering could that be true or it's an invitation into something that would actually begin to change you. And again, I think that the kingdom of God is rooted in us understanding who the king is and how to relate to him. So it makes sense that we would just stop and we would pray. It also makes sense that it's really a struggle for us. And so a lot of us have expectations about what prayer looks like. And when we import those in, we often feel discouraged or frustrated. It's like in a relationship, if you got your parenting expectations from watching 1990s sitcoms, I would guess you're pretty frustrated with how parenting went in those early years. If you thought about romance from 1980s skate rinks when it's holding hands and couple skate, if those songs trained you what romance was like, you brought expectations into your relationship that just simply weren't real. And there's times that we think about prayer, I think, and our expectations, they're just not, they're not what the scriptures would call us to. So we have these ideas about who we are and what it looks like and what it sounds like for us. And I think what Jesus does is he wants to demystify that and bring us into something that's more real and tangible and relatable for us. So, so our expectations of just what prayer is kind of jams us up, as well as our expectations of who God is. This passage actually is going to start with uh, an invitation to prayer by talking about who God himself is. And so our expectations of who God is actually shapes some of the struggle and some of the ways that we engage in prayer. And here's the good news. Jesus came into our world to tell us what God was like. 
Because when you look at the universe and you wonder, like, what kind of God would have done this? What kind of God has that kind of power? And you're left to interpret that. It could take you any number of places about what he must be like. And so Jesus came into our world so they wouldn't have to guess or wouldn't have to just interpret from the scars. Like, like, like what kind of a God spins planets, has them explode for like thousands of years, and we could never see them? And then once we do start seeing them, they seem to not change, though they're exploding at a rate that is just mind-blowing, like 70 billion light years in, in like a week, that kind of range. And you're going like, what kind of a God does that? How do I relate to him? Well, Jesus answers that for us. And he answers it both by teaching us, but also by modeling for us. The scriptures say that Jesus came to show us what God was like, that God came, the word became flesh and dwelt among us so that we would know what God was like. And then in this section, he comes to teach us what God is like. So so the idea of this exploding star God still being relational and letting you talk to him does blow our minds, but Jesus wants to orient us around the truth that you have access to this God. So, so prayer is hard, and it's something that we struggle with. And I think all of us would say we struggle with it. All of us wish we prayed more, prayed differently, or prayed uh, deeper. One of my goals in the quarantine was to increase my capacity to pray. All of us want to grow there, and this passage, I think, will begin to help us. So let me just give you four R's to kind of give us some placeholders for this passage, and we'll walk through. I want to talk about two common responses to prayer, and then one primary relationship in prayer. And then I want to talk about the infinite reward of prayer and then the reorienting reassurance of prayer. So responses, relationship, reward, and reassurance. Look with me in verse 5 of chapter 6. There's two common responses that Jesus gives us here. It says in verse 5, And when you pray, assuming that you're going to pray, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogue and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. So one common response is this religious response that wants to be seen and wants to prove and wants to earn something through its praying. It wants to demonstrate both a holiness and a sincerity, loves to be seen and recognized. It's common for us to engage prayer as a way to actually earn identity and reputation. He says there's a way to do that that actually falls Short. You want to be seen by others, and you actually are seen by them, he says, and that's where your reward stops. But in verse 6, he says, but when you pray, instead of being seen by others, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who is in secret will reward you. So one response, praying to be seen, which is different than being seen praying. It's okay to be seen praying. Jesus prays out loud. He teaches us to pray out loud. We see there's passages all throughout the New Testament of people praying and the Old Testament. It's not a problem to be seen praying. Jesus says the problem is to pray in order to be seen, which is about gaining identity, about leveraging prayer, about using it to prove something. So one common response is to to make prayer a leverage point with ourselves and with God. And it doesn't just stop with trying to impress other people. We actually begin to try to impress God as well. And when that happens, the relationship no longer is authentic. We we are managing and controlling and manipulating. You're trying to do things and say things to get something in response. That's not an authentic relationship, right? So, So that kind of grandstanding to be recognized, Jesus says it's possible for us to pray that way. It's a response like, and maybe it makes sense, like if God's the God of the entire universe... 
How else would you approach him except with these amazing words in this big production? I remember watching a a miniseries about John Adams, our, our second president. And there's a scene in there where he's going before another king to ask for money for our country for wars. And, and the, the, the aide is helping him know all the protocols of how to come into the king's court. And it's this long, big thing of where you bow and how you bow and what you say and where you look. All these protocols to get into that sort of space. And so maybe if we think about God as this big, grand star slinger who we can't actually have a relationship with, our only hope is to follow some sort of protocol. Jesus says, if you do that, though, it's actually a hypocrisy where it's not really your heart. You're just using words to get something. And that's a way that actually he calls us not to pray. So then verse seven, he gives us a a second common response. If one is a religious hypocrisy, verse seven, he says, and when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles, people who don't know God, people who don't have a relationship with God. So this would think now pagan religions think people that go into temples and make sacrifices to to false gods who get into all kinds of cantations and all kinds of rhythms, trying to say things over and over and over again, trying to please the gods. Old Testament story of this would be on Mount Carmel where the prophets of Baal are trying to get God to react in that moment and they're cutting themselves and they're chanting, almost putting themselves into a trance. He says, "Don't, don't do that kind of mindless babbling, that kind of heaping up empty phrases, for for they think that they'll be heard by their many words. If they just keep saying it over and over and over again, then God will hear. He says, don't be like them, for your father already knows what you need before you ask him. Pray therefore like this, and then he goes into the Lord's Prayer. So, So another response is not just an irreligious response, but it's almost like a superstitious response. It's like if I prayed the right words, if I had the right language, if I did the right formula, and I prayed it over and over and over again, it's almost like casting a spell or doing voodoo. If I did that, then God would surely respond to me. And it's not the same as liturgies or things that are repetitive, kind of that our hearts are engaged with. It's this mindlessness, he says, where I'm thinking that God is somebody that I could control or manage if I just said enough good words. But the pagan religions of the ancient world weren't just about worship. They were about control. You would climb a mountain and go to a pagan temple and make a sacrifice and pray certain prayers to get the gods to do things for you. So you would go to the fertility god if you have trouble making a baby. You would go to the god of crops, the god of rain, the god of war, and you would do things to appease them so they would work for you and do what you needed them to do. So Jesus is saying, hey, the god that we're talking about in the kingdom of God is not like that. We don't manage him and leverage him. So, so one common response is trying to impress and build an identity. The other one is to manage or control. It's almost like superstitious, the way like an athlete will kind of go through rituals thinking if he rolls his socks just the right way, then there's some sort of mojo he gets in the game. It's almost like that we pray like, is there some kind of mojo that if I did it just right, then God would owe me, he would actually engage with me. And Jesus says it's actually way, way, way different. There's two common responses. Instead, he says, hey, there's a relationship that you should be mindful of. And he uses the word father 10 times in verses uh, 1 to 18 of chapter 6. He wants to say over and over and over again, hey, when it comes to relationship in the kingdom, you actually have a relationship with the king who is your father. So he says, rather than praying to be seen by other people, go where only your father can see you. And rather than praying to these empty gods, these empty words, thinking that you could leverage them, understand your father already knows. He knows what's going on. He knows what you need. He's personal. He's available to you. And in that space, he wants to actually hear and answer your prayers. What you think about God determines how you pray to him, right? It just makes sense. 
If you see God as a genie who grants wishes, well, then you pray that way. If you see him as a mob boss that you have to be good enough for or pay off so that he leaves you alone or protects you, then you pray a certain way. If he's a sugar daddy who gives you what you want when you please him, if he's an aloof father who doesn't care about you, whatever you think about God determines how you actually relate. So Jesus comes as the son of God to tell us that the king of the universe actually is a father. He is a relational God, and this would blow our minds. Now, you have categories of father in the Old Testament, but it's like father to the whole nation, like the entire family of God. What Jesus does is he personalizes that, and he talks about your father, your your father seeing you individually when you're by yourself or when you're praying. Therefore, you don't have to try to impress him. You don't have to try to manage him. He actually sees you. So so be reverent for sure, respectful for sure. But the scriptures say that when it comes to the king of the universe, the one who spun these stars into existence, we get to call him Abba Father, like, like daddy, like an intimate child coming close to a father. Jesus is blowing our minds in categories. It would be one thing just to get to be acknowledged by the God of the universe, but to have a close personal relationship with him where you can actually speak to him as your father really does blow your mind. And I think most of our struggles with obedience and with holiness and with trust and confidence come from the fact that we have a hard time believing God is actually like that. So what we have to do is realize we're not Relating to him as father because we did so many amazing things. We're relating to him as father because he and his mercy chose through the sacrifice of Jesus to adopt us as his children. This is not an audition that you have where you're auditioning for the role of child of God. It is given to you by the gracious mercy of Jesus and his sacrifice on your behalf. And it welcomes you into a lasting relationship. That your relationship with God isn't owed to your past or your present or your future. It's owed to what Christ has already done in the past, is doing in the present, and will do in the future. When the scriptures talk about Christianity or being a Christian, it rarely uses that phrase. Rather, it says that you're in Christ. For those of you who are in Christ, we saw it in Colossians chapter 3. It's all over the book of Ephesians. If you're in Christ, then that's your identity. And Romans 8 tells us that identity is one of adopted children who are close and tender with God. If you want to flip there, it's on page 944. Let me just read this to you. This is Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 12. It's on page 944 in your pew Bible, or you could just listen to this. Listen to this like amazing news. So right after he's talked about the struggle we have with not doing what we want to do and doing what we don't want to do in chapter 7. He says in verse 8 that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For those who are in Christ Jesus, that's, that's their identity. For those who are in that space, there's no condemnation. He tells us in verse 11 that the Spirit of God dwells inside of us, which is just mind-blowing. You wonder if anybody sees you, if anybody cares, and now you hear God himself, the God of the universe, through his Spirit, dwells inside of you. I mean, that'll change how you pray if God was right here, far from like conjuring him through lots of words, he's already present. You're already actually engaging with him. And then in verse 12 of chapter 8, he says this, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh the way we used to live, to live according to the flesh. We don't owe our old life anything. Not shame, not guilt. We don't have to pay back. For you have lived according to the flesh, but you will die if you live that way. But if you live by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, and you will live For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. 
For you didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, not just tolerated. Man, we're heirs and heirs of God and fellow heirs even with Christ. So if Jesus calls God the Father and then he calls us to call God Father, he's saying we're actually heirs with our brother Christ. If we trust him and we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him, he says. So so Romans 8 says this idea of Father is not something that you earn or deserve. It's something that Christ accomplished for you. He adopts you, and as an adopted child, you are praying to one who didn't just sling the stars into place. He died in your place to make a way for you to actually be in close relationship. And so we're engaging not just with this deity out there, but with an actual father. He labors over and over and over again in this passage to say, it is your father that you are praying to, which has lots of jagged edges in our culture for sure, but you could just feel the longing of what it would mean to have a healthy, robust, secure relationship with an earthly father. And then to think that the God of the universe actually invites you into that. It's amazing. So, so he goes from this relationship to this infinite reward. And he contrasts, like when we pray to manage or leverage or build our identity, there's a, there's a reward for that. So when you pray to be seen by people and you want to impress them and they're impressed with your prayers, you actually get a hit. You get a reward. It pays in some way, but it has this very, very limited payment to it. So instead of that, he says there's a reward that comes from, in verse 6, a God who is in secret. He is omnipresent and a God who sees in secret. He is omniscient. Jesus wants to elevate who you understand God to be to say it's not just a person that you esteem or you want their approval. This is God himself who is omnipresent and omniscient. So when it comes to passing out rewards, to think about this temporary reward from somebody who sees you in the human form and says, man, that guy can pray like crazy, end of reward, that finiteness could never actually satisfy. Instead, you have an infinite God who sees what's going on in secret, and he sees it in such a way that he is both there and he sees it so he can reward you. So Jesus says the place behind closed doors in shut rooms is actually engaging with the Father. So here's the great news of prayer. More than earning something or proving something or performing in such a way that we're loved, we get to engage with a God who actually cares about us. We get to be settled and secure in a relationship with an omnipotent and omnipresent God who wants to be our father, adopts us, lets us call him daddy, which puts us in this safe, secure space. Okay, that sounds amazing, but most of our experiences don't match that description, right? So I'm saying you have this intimate relationship, so just go get it. Well, what about last week when you tried to pray and you felt like it didn't make any difference at all? What about when you're trying to pray and you kind of got lost? What about when you're trying to pray and you wondered, does God actually care? Because our haunting question is, does this God of the universe actually see us and does he care? So Jesus labors in this text to help us understand that when we're praying, God sees and he knows what we need. So so it's an invitation to intimacy, but intimacy is something that gets cultivated. So so I went to this passage in my study this week. It's in 1 John chapter 2. You can flip there if you like, but First John chapter 2, he says this, And now little children abide in him, right? So cultivate a relationship with God 
so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from him in shame. Learn to be in the presence of God. Learn to engage with your Father. Learn to be there in such a way that you're cultivating a nearness and a closeness that feels familiar so that you don't shrink back from shame at his coming. And if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world doesn't know us is that it didn't know him. And beloved, we are children of God now. And what we will be is not yet appear like it's going to get better. There's going to be more to come. But we know what, what, what we have when he appears. And we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. It actually changes us, he says. But he tells us, hey, you are children of God. You have that relationship. Now cultivate and abide in that. And in so doing, you'll get yourself into a space where you're not shrinking back in shame in the relationship. So there's a call to have this secure relationship with God the Father and to understand a cultivation of that. But to actually be in these secret places behind closed doors when it's just us and the Father, that's where we actually cultivate this relationship. It's where you are seen. It's where you are vulnerable. It's where you're met with grace. It's where you can fall apart. It's where you don't have to perform. If the temptations are to impress... And to manage, could we just flip those around? And instead of impressing people, we could just be present with the Father. And instead of trying to manage and control, we could just receive. Like like little children who get to sit with their parents. So, So there's a call to kind of sit in that. He is the reward. And yet our experience shows there's some like effort. It's not effort to please him or to get his attention. It's effort to cultivate a relationship so that we feel comfortable with him. Let me give you two illustrations to kind of help us understand. One of my favorite weddings to do was for a guy named Cohen, and his wife's name was Caitlin. They're amazing. They're in New York now. He's a counselor. She's in marketing. They're just a phenomenal couple and fairly awkward. Cohen is genuine, very sincere, um, and a little bit awkward. So his first ask of a date to Caitlin He said, I want to ask you out, but here's the catch. It's a six-date package deal. We can't just do one date. We have to commit to six dates up front because I'm pretty awkward. And the first date, I'm going to be super nervous. I'm going to be falling over myself. I'm going to make you really nervous. That first date is a total wash. The second date, we'll be nervous coming back into it because the first date was so awkward. The second date, we're going to need some time to catch our breath and get familiar with each other again. But by the third and fourth and fifth date, I think we'll be able to relax enough that we could actually be who we really are. And after six whole dates, you can make a decision if you want to keep dating me or not. That's amazing. I don't know, dudes, you may want to play that card a little bit. And it could get kind of, kind of stalkerish, so you want to be careful how you phrase that. But essentially, he was saying, hey, this is going to be kind of hard. And the first couple of dates, I'm going to be trying to impress you, and then I'm going to be nervous I'm not impressing you, and you're going to ask me what I do, and I'm not really sure about my future plans, so that's going to make me insecure. And so I need some space just to cultivate a relationship with you. I thought that was, was brilliant. And what he's saying is, man, just, it takes some time to drop the illustration. Now let me give you, I've worked um, pretty hard, pretty diligently, pretty focused at dating our children. So we do lots of daddy-daughter dates and lots of man dates, and we just kind of regularly get time with our kids. And when they were little, it was every single week when I would go back and forth with them, and we would just spend some time. And the philosophy was this, like, I need tons of time with my kids 
where they see my eyes and have a focused conversation that's not super intense, where they're not in trouble, because they, they get tons of that, right? So they get lots of time on their bed talking about what they did wrong. They've got my full attention, but that's kind of scary. Or I'm trying to teach them these deep spiritual truths and teach them how to pray, but they're four years old, and so that's, that's kind of also overwhelming. I needed literally like hundreds of interactions with my children where they have my full attention and we're playing Legos, or we're writing stories, or we're watching sunrises, or we're eating a bagel, or we're going for a walk, or we're singing some songs, or we're coloring, or we're just hanging out in the yard, or we're going to the park. Lots of focused time, these dates where it was just the two of us in a relationship being there, but learning how to be comfortable. So when I needed to discipline them, or have these really important spiritual conversations, it wasn't the first time that they were engaging with me. Or, or the last time we engaged, they were in trouble. So now I say, I want to talk to you about something really serious. And they're like, oh, dang, what did I do? If all we get are intense moments, we don't learn to cultivate regular relationships, right? So, so we did tons of Thursday mornings at Panera. You might think wasting time, but it was actually building and cultivating, learning how to abide, if you will, in a relationship with my kids so that we can actually have intimacy, so that we can actually be close, so that they learn to trust me, so that we actually spend time where we're actually comfortable. So when Jesus is talking about these two reactions and responses, I think those come when we don't feel comfortable with God, when we're trying to prove something and perform and impress him, or or we're trying to leverage and manage him, because you don't do that with relationships where you feel secure and intimate. And what Jesus is saying is really profound in verse 6. Look at me there. He says, but when you pray, go, go to your room and shut the door. And he's not just saying, like, he'll go hide. He's saying, be alone with me. Drop all the pressure to impress other people. Drop all the pressure to say all these fancy words. Would you just sit with your father who's in secret? And the one who's in secret actually sees you in secret, and he will rewards you. There's this cultivation, right? So the reward is actually God himself, but, but it takes some work not to please or not to like earn, but just for us to feel comfortable with him. Because most of our life, we just have been trained to manage and to leverage and to control and to manipulate and to try to impress. And so when you become a Christian, that doesn't just stop overnight. You carry that into your relationship with God. And so Jesus is saying, hey, you actually in those secret places cultivate a sense of comfort with God a quietness in your own soul, the ability just to sit and breathe and know that it matters and God's there and you don't have to have words. He sees you in that place. In, in that spot, what's happening is you're moving away from like building and calculating an identity to something that actually is real and genuine and that the reward actually then begins to, to grow. So this cosmic God meets you in your prayer closet And it's in that place that you actually experience the the reward. And and it's not, again, earning it and leveraging it. It's just enjoying it, learning how to sit in it, like you have to do with your parents, like you have to do in a a romantic relationship, like you have to do at work, like you have to do in every single relationship. So so every relationship of significance takes time for us to kind of get into that spot and feel comfortable. Of course, that would be true with prayer as well. And if you're trying to be comfortable with a genie or with a mob boss, that's pretty intimidating. So Jesus says, hey, this is your father who who you get the chance to sit with and engage with in ways that actually begin to change you. All right, so so there's the reward. Finally, this reassurance. So we carry this question of, does anybody actually see me, know me? Does anybody care? 
If I'm struggling, does anybody want to know about that? If I have dreams, does anybody want to walk alongside of me with that? If you really saw me for who I am, if you knew what was really going on inside, inside my soul, would you still love me? We carry this abiding question with us. So what Jesus says to those who are tempted to perform or those who are tempted to manage is two comforting words, two, two assurances he gives. One we've said in verse 6, that God already sees you and he's already with you, right? So he already is there. And then number two, he already knows what you need in verse 8. Don't be like the Gentiles who heap up all these fancy words, thinking it's through their many words that they're going to be heard. Don't be like them, for your Father already knows what you need even before you ask Him. What Jesus is doing in this moment, I think, is reducing that relational risk where we wonder, man, if you knew this about me, could we still be in a relationship? Could I, could I actually say this honestly and you not reject me? Could you see the brokenness inside and still want to be around me? So what Jesus says, hey, to all of that stuff, that abiding insecurity that we carry, he already sees you, he's already there, and he already knows what you need. Which we'll just play that out a little bit. He already knows you need grace. He already knows you need help struggling to kind of be present in a way that you're not going to perform and try to impress him. He already knows that you've been trained so much to think that God's like a mechanical thing that you put a bunch of phrases in and you get out these certain inputs. And so he knows you need to settle down just a little bit and be with you. He already knows you need that. He has the grace to help you settle into that so you can pray in more authentic ways. He already knows the brokenness and the jagged edges of your soul. He knows the sin and the things that you're like, man, if anybody else knew this, I would surely not have a relationship with them. He already sees that. He already knows what you need, and he's already provided for it. He's already died on the cross to pay the penalty for those places where you can actually already have redemption and forgiveness and healing and help for all of those places. So the reassurance is that you're not taking risks to be in God's presence when you pray. You're not trying to like cross your fingers going, man, I hope this goes well this morning. Now, it may be one of those early morning dates with my daughter where all we're doing is just kind of telling stories or asking one open-ended question or we're just drawing or I ask a question and it's answered with yes or no and it kind of falls flat there. But that's still intimacy building. There's not a risk there of do I want to be with her? Am I trying to be close to her? When it comes to your prayers, you're not taking risks or rolling dice wondering does God care? Will he hear? He promises to be there with you. And in that space, he's reducing the relational risk by reassuring us that God already sees and he already knows. And the good news of the gospel is he's already provided what you need so you can actually have everything you need in Christ. So, so let me go back to Romans 8 for a second. This is starting in verse 26. He says this, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. He doesn't just see us, and he's not just knowing what we need. He actually gives us his spirit who's dwelling inside of us, right? This one who adopts us as his children, and that spirit helps us in our weaknesses. He already knows that we need it, and he's already there. For when we don't know what to pray as we ought, the spirit himself intercedes with us with groans too deep for words. He's not just there. He's actually helping us know how to pray. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the spirit, because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those whom God loves, all things work together for their good. He's at work in all the details of our life. For those who are called according to his purposes, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. God is after transforming you into the image of his son. That's why all this stuff is happening. Good, bad, painful, pleasant. He's using all that to shape you in order that you might be the firstborn among many brothers. 
And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Past, present, and future secure relationship. And then catch this at verse 31. And what then shall we say to all of this? This is overwhelming. I don't have to feel shame. He's with me. He adopts me. He understands. He's helping me pray. What shall we say to all of this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who didn't spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with us with him graciously give us all things. If he knew what our biggest need was and he met that in Christ already, how will he not give us everything else that we need? And he goes on to say, who will bring a charge against us? Who will add shame and guilt and condemnation? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn us then? Christ Jesus is the one who died. And more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or inconsistencies or your sin or your past or somebody finding out or your your relational habits that are actually really dysfunctional? Will that stuff separate you? Knowing all these things, you are more than conquerors to him who loved you. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So, so why pray? Like, why would you even spend the time and the effort? Why, why would you engage in this crazy exercise of prayer? Because God has actually already made provision for you to be close to him. He's already done everything that you needed him to do so that you could be in relationship with you. Your heavenly father loves you. He sees you. He knows what you need. And he's already provided it for you. Now what we get a chance to do is to cultivate that closeness without the pressure of trying to perform or or the temptation to try to manage and control provided, we can take a deep breath and learn to lean into prayer. That's the good news of the gospel applied to your struggle with being intimate with God himself. Christians hear this. Christ has already accomplished what you needed so that you could pray to your Father. He doesn't need you to impress him. He just wants your heart. Those of you who don't know Jesus, here's the good news. God has already done all the work to make it possible for you to be forgiven and set free, to be in a relationship with this God of the universe that you actually can't deny. You may try to define him certain ways and limit him down to what he does, but you can't look at the scars of the stars and say there's nothing out there. So what do you do with that kind of God? The great news is he did all the work already and came towards you. And what we do in communion is celebrate the reality that Christ already did all the work. So for a Christian, it's a reminder. And for a non-believer, it's an invitation. The broken body and shed blood of Jesus reminds believers of what Christ has done to make this all possible. And for those who don't yet know Jesus, the celebration of Christ's death on the cross is an invitation to you to come and receive. And if that's you, man, I would invite you to come and trust him this morning. You could take communion with us today, and let's talk about it after the service if you're ready to trust Christ. And if you're not, you can sit in your pews. There's little prayers on the back of your bulletin that would help you engage, because we're going to move now to just remembering how prayer is actually possible by taking communion together. So there's a little cup. There's some in the back. If you miss it, there's some here at this front table as well. There's a little wafer in there and this little cup of juice. It, it feebly represents the broken body and shed blood of Christ, which is what Christ has done. He's already given us what we needed so that we could be in relationship. So I'm going to pray now for us. And then would you take communion and then ask the Spirit of God to speak to you and draw you to himself as you think about what it means to pray. Jesus, thank you for who you are. Thanks that against our feeble attempts to leverage or impress or manage, 
you've come into the world and done all the work for us. You just asked us to trust you and to believe and to come close. To, To be in a relationship with you is this amazing invitation where you've done all the work. We just get to abide and sit. So would you even do that now, God? Would you nourish our souls now while we take communion, remembering what you've done, that you've met our biggest needs, and you already see us? Thank you. We worship you. Speak to us now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us online. Leewood Baptist Church exists to glorify God by making disciples of all nations. For more information about us and our ministry, please visit us at www.leewoodbaptist.com. Mm-hmm.